0: Hello, fellow travelers <laughs> on the great journey. I'm so um, so glad to have this time with you. It's kind of become a tradition for me to do the final Dharma talk, um, and I think it, it happened that way because people have tended to cry a lot during it, <laughs> and it sort of felt like a nice way to end our time together, to kind of um, have a... Uh, an emotional time. I'm not guaranteeing that that's going to happen or is supposed to happen, but it's um, just something about music, I think, that just has that pathway into the heart. And many of you have heard me many, many years at Spirit Rock and have heard a lot of the songs I sing about being a parent. I started writing them when my son was very small, even a baby, even before he was born, and continue to write as as he gets older. So... A lot of you have heard a lot of these songs and I actually am kind of in a different place today and I'm going to do a slightly different talk than I usually do um, for two reasons. One is that um, my own dad, who is 95, has is, um, been taken very ill in the last week and um, has been diagnosed with a pretty severe cancer. So I'm holding that, carrying that, and many of you know this and are carrying it with me, but now you all know it, and that's helpful to me, to to have it be known that this is just a a threshold we're all going to cross if we haven't crossed it yet, and now it's my turn to cross from being a, a daughter who has a father in this world to a daughter who doesn't have a father in this world, and it's pretty big, it's pretty big. So I'm dedicating my talk this morning to my dad. His name is David Rose. And I'm going to talk about him in the context of the Bodhisattva. Um, and many of you are familiar with that term. It's a, it's a term for a, a being who dedicates his or her life to the well-being of all beings. And in the traditional story of the Bodhisattva, it is someone who has achieved their own liberation through dedicated practice and... Um, However many lifetimes they've come back to to purify and, and to liberate, and at that point they make a decision to continue to return, even though they don't have to in that in that tradition, but um, to come back until all beings are liberated. Um, in a more simple, common language, I think I think of bodhisattvas as people we talked about this morning: Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Rosa Parks and. Um, the teacher who has extra time for the child, you know, and the custodian who plants a community garden at the school, and um, anyone who is just seems inclined to think of the well-being of a wider circle. And um, I think parents automatically become bodhisattvas. It's sort of part of who we are, because uh, parenting involves so much self-sacrifice, so much extending ourselves beyond what we think is possible, and so much putting sometimes our own agendas and our own desires aside for the sake of of a greater well-being. So uh, before I go any further, though, I'm going to start with the song that I always, always start this talk with because I, I just love this song so much. I think it's the wisest song I've ever heard, the wisest wisdom about parenting. It's the words of Khalil Gilbran and the music of Issei Barnwell, and it's called On Children. Our children are not our children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through us, but they are not from us. And though they are with us, they belong not to us. We can give them our love but not our thoughts because they have their own thoughts. They have their own thoughts. (laughs) We can house their bodies but not their souls for their souls dwell in a place of tomorrow which we cannot visit, not even in our dreams. We can strive to be like them, but we cannot make them just like us. Strive to be like them, but we cannot make them just like us. We've, um, in this retreat, we have been engaging very deeply and thoughtfully with the teens and their needs. And it's been such a teaching for the parents and the counselors and the leadership. And I think it's just a, a, a beautiful example of how we can give them our love, but... Not much of our thoughts. (laughs) Try as we might. (laughs) And we actually seem to do a little better when we listen to their thoughts (laughs) and see how to respond, you know. And of course, we were talking in our teacher meetings about to listen wisely and lovingly to, to youth doesn't mean to give them everything they want. You know, that's not wise parenting. But it does mean listening for the grain of truth. And to me, I'm sort of jumping just into my intuitive talk here. There's nothing to do with my notes. Um, to me, the, the essence of what children are asking from us over and over and over again is respect. It may sound like I want a Nintendo or I want an iPod or all my other friends have a, a Mustang. It's, that's what it sounds like. But what it really is is show me that you hear me. Show me that you see that my world matters to me. You know, And if we honor that the thing they're craving isn't that important. It's really the, the heart of the matter. And I think we've learned that with the teens this week. Don't you think, Rebecca? Yeah. yeah. So, um, the, I also want to just mention something. Um, Ajahn Pasano's talk yesterday was so wonderful. And as I listened to it, I thought, gee, this is really the same talk I was going to give today, but just I was going to do it in a little bit different language. <laughs> just shows that we're like-minded. <laughs> But, but my, my, my version of it, just what I wanted to talk about was the naturalness of this, this urge to not only love the people that are directly touching our lives, but the wider, wider world. And you really touched on that yesterday, that um, it, it is just a natural outpouring that comes from finding that calmness and that peace inside ourselves. And it is not a big strain, it's not a big effort. And the bodhisattva vows, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're just really overwhelming. It's like, beings are numberless. I vow to liberate all of them. I mean, a thousand ladybugs my son tried, you know? (laughs) But all beings? And there's other language like that. you know. And it's all this very grand, huge, beyond, it's beyond what is humanly possible. That's what the bodhisattva vows really are. They're beyond what's humanly possible. So I'm thinking, what is that about? Because I don't want it to just make me feel bad. I think what it's pointing to is our infinite capacity to love. That we have hearts that are infinitely spacious. We can feel tenderness over a picture of a, a hurting child in Afghanistan. We can cry over a picture of a polar bear and on the ice caps losing its, its, you know, its food and its life. Um, our hearts are, are huge beyond, beyond belief. When Thich Nhat Hanh says in one of his gathas, I am solid... I am free, I am solid, I am free. We're bound by our human ability to, we can only work so many hours, we can only serve so many lives in any given moment, but in our hearts we are completely free and infinite in our capacity. So that is how I like to hold the bodhisattva ideal, is as it's my own capacity to stretch, even to stretch further than I believe is possible in my heart, Not to overextend my actions beyond what's right for me, but just in my capacity to feel. So, I'll probably come back to that. Um, But my, I wanna, my talk, I have a title for my talk and it is My Dad as Bodhisattva. And I wanna talk about, a little bit about his life and a few just vignettes from his life and what he has taught me and what I've learned from him. And I'm gonna start first framing it with a song that I wrote many years ago. In my early years of awakening, this was really before I started having a practice at all, but um, we're spiritual beings long before we know we're spiritual beings. So it's called The Great Scheme of Things. In the great scheme of things, I'm learning to find my part in the chorus of this place and time. And I'm adding confusion And deep harmony To the great scheme of things Where everyone's curious Is it comic or serious? Still we play it for keeps My daddy walked humble Down the road of his life, he was cast as a preacher with children and a wife. And it never quite fit him, but it's all that he got in the great scheme of things. He danced with the given. He stepped out of rhythm. He went his own way after all. And my mama, she's a beauty with gifts of all kinds. But the role she was given was sadly confined. Still, she poured out her passion. She filled up her part In the great scheme of things Her children were treasured Nourished with pleasure It was almost enough In the great scheme of things I'm learning part in the chorus of this place and time and I'm stumbling on my exits I'm fumbling my lines in the great scheme of things where everyone wonders if maybe the blunders. The best parts of all. Now I've pushed against rivers, I've battered at winds, I've cursed at the forces that circled me in. And it's not resignation. Turning to now In the great scheme of things You carve with the wood grain You sign with your own name The shape of your life Now the ones gone before me Helped set up this scene and the ones who come after Gonna build on my dreams One people's far horizon Is the next people's past In the great scheme of things The world's turning faster May end in disasters Dancing on the edge. In the great scheme of things, I'm learning to find my part in the chorus of this place and time. All the road, and sorry, with my mother's bright passion. My father's, my father's, I'll just say it, my father's dark prayer, in the great scheme of things, all the roads are converging. I'm reaching and searching for my roots and my wings in the great scheme of things. never put Kleenex up here because they don't expect (laughs) us to cry. (laughs) Thank you, Tonya. It is so, so comforting to me to share this with you and to feel your hearts responding. Because this is just something we are all either have gone through or are going to go through, you know? It's just life. And um, there's nothing wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong, you know? But it's just so good to share it. (laughs) Hold it together. My dad, you know, that that line about one people's far horizon is the next people's past. When my dad was a a small child, he was able to converse with his, I think it was his grandfather. It might have been his great-grandfather, but it was either one of those two who fought in the Civil War. And so when my dad goes, there's like this piece of history that he had in his bones that kind of goes with him. I mean, only except that it's still in my heart. But I just feel that, how when we lose a parent, we're kind of losing a generation. And um, it's just very poignant. It's very poignant that this is just the great turning. It's just how it, how it is. And somehow, mysteriously, we become the older generation. You know, little Betsy is all of a sudden an elder. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> There's not, nothing to be said about this. <laughs> oh. You know, you know what I mean. <laughs> so, my dad um, was a minister, and he was always kind of a maverick. We lived in Salem, Oregon, um, which in the fifties or early sixties was a pretty lily-white um, middle-class um, community, and except for the migrant workers who came through every season to pick the crops, but they didn't. We didn't really mingle, you know. But my dad had a deep sense of social justice, and I don't know exactly where he got it, because his parents weren't particularly those kind of folks. But um, he had an innate um, empathy for the underdog. So in this fairly proper church in Salem, Oregon, he would um, spend more time than his parishioners thought he he should, Doing things like going down to the Greyhound bus station, which we all know is where people with a lot, without a lot of means tend to pass through because they don't have cars and they don't fly and whatnot. So Greyhound bus stations are places where people hang out, and you can also get a cheap cup of coffee there. And he would just go and sit at the coffee counter and drink coffee and just chat up the people who were there, and kind of he had like a street ministry before there was a name for it. And his church really did not think that was the right use of his time, and they wanted him, you know, in his office in his his, his coat and his tie, you know, being ministerial in a kind of a traditional role. And um, that just wasn't his calling. So what, you know, when, as I got to know my dad better over the years, I, I, and I think about him, um, I think it's such an example of a person's natural tenderness leading them out into the world, you know. And his natural tenderness, I think, came from his own being if my dad was a child at this retreat, he would be the one who would be standing on his head and kicking his heels in the air while everybody else is sitting like this, you know, and he'd be the one at Waterworld who was finally pulled out of the pool because he was just being a little too wild. He was that kind of a kid, and if they had diagnoses back in those days, he might have been ADHD or some number of letters, Um, but so, I think he knew something about what it was like to not quite fit in or to feel a little uncomfortable in your own skin, and that vulnerability took him out where he felt comfortable, just like my son found himself comfortable with the ladybugs. My dad felt more comfortable with the the poor folks at the at the Greyhound station than with the the upright you know kind of um, businessmen and CEOs and whatever that were in his church so I just think that's an important thing for, for us to just keep holding in our hearts, is that if we just follow our natural tenderness, it will take us naturally out into the world and into those places where there's a need. And that, um, well, I'll talk about a little bit later about what gets in the way of that. But one more story about my dad. Um, the Civil Rights Movement was beginning to be visible and known in the late 50s and early 60s. And he was very, very um, inspired by that and affected by that. And... I remember him saying, we were watching something on TV of some of the the violence, some of the people marching and getting hosed, and and the dogs set on them, and he just slapped his, he he would like slap something, he'd like slap the table at dinner, he'd slap his knee, and he'd say, I wish I could go down there, I want to be there, you know, but he had five kids, and he had a job, and it just, it didn't, he couldn't figure out how to do it, you know. But he got in, this was also in, in Salem, Oregon, he got inspired because he heard that they were closing down the high schools rather than integrate them. And so none of the kids were able to finish high school, black or white. So he had this idea to um, bring some of the black kids up to Salem, Oregon, and go to high school there and finish high school. You know, And that was just that visionary kind of, went against everything that people around him were, were wanting, but he just had that kind of fire in him. And I know your dad too had some fire in him, didn't he? and um and so he talked it up with um, some other ministers in the area and other people with some power and some money who could subsidize these kids to come up and people who could have them in their homes and everybody said, Great idea, Dave really wonderful you 're a great guy, but they wouldn 't do it they wouldn 't do it. It was just a little outside the comfort zone you know so the the result of that was that he um he was actually fired from that church for you know whatever whatever reason but that, um, and that's, that's okay, because he wasn't that happy there anyway. <laughs> sometimes it's a blessing. If any of you have ever been laid off, you know sometimes it's a blessing. <laughs> but, you know, I think what what, what that is such a, a kind of a poignant teaching to me is how hard it is as parents to balance our responsibilities to our families with the call of the world. And that sometimes as a parent, I feel like, don't talk to me about you know, the poor and the hungry and the this and the that, because it's just, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm maxed out. It's just too much. I can't do it. You know? And so, you know, how do we, how do we um, kind of find that balance? You know, because it is the natural tendency of our hearts to feel connected, and it is an injury to our hearts to cut that connection and stop that connection. So, I want to think, just say something about our culture. Um, because it's really cultural conditioning that is our biggest enemy or our biggest obstacle, I guess I should say, our biggest hindrance. It's not anything in us that hinders us from caring and compassion. It's really our cultural conditioning. Um, We are living in a culture that glorifies the individual, that glorifies accumulation, wealth, consumption, and glorifies competition. Um, at the, at the school level, we see our children really struggling with this. If any of you have high schoolers, teenagers, you know that just this whole race to, (laughs) race to nowhere, if you've ever seen that movie, the race to nowhere, which are we going to show it this fall, Amy? It's going to be shown this fall at a wonderful conference on youth and education and mindfulness that Amy's putting on in Palo Alto. And she can maybe tell us more about that sometime, maybe. Um, so anyway, this race to college, and we just went through that. My son is now in college and, um... Uh, this just this hyped-up sense of scarcity, that there's only a little of whatever it is that we are are needing. There's only a a little bit of good college education, not enough to go around. And also there's only a little bit of belonging. Only the coolest and most attractive and most hip are going to belong. And everybody's scrambling for that belonging. And we certainly see that with our children. You know, the Buddha was asked... um, something about what was the most important thing, and I, maybe you should tell this instead of me, Ajahnpa Sano, uh, uh, when Ananda says, is it the Dharma that's the most important thing? Is it half of the holy life? Is it half? Oh, the sangha, that's right, is it the community? Is it ha- the, the Sangha is half of the holy life, isn't it? And the Buddha says, no, it is not half of the holy life, it is all of the holy life. So that sense of we, of connectedness, of belonging, is the essence of our happiness and our liberation. And children are born with um, this sort of innate desire to connect, that's, that's our nature, we want to connect. Our brains are wired to connect with each other, to feel happier when we're connected. We're wired for empathy. This whole fight or flight thing is just a little bit of the story. There is so much more interesting wiring going on there besides the fight or flight um, reptilian brain. And more, the more that neuroscience develops, the more they really understand that we are wired for compassion, we're wired for connection. It's natural, it's innate. So our children naturally are looking to belong, but the culture is offering them these really distorted images of what belonging is about. And so we see all this tension among the the teens and even younger to, to out- do each other with the quick comment and the smart remark and, the, and then the who's got the iPad or who's got the this, you know. And it's all about belonging. That's really all it is. Who cares a hoot about this little plastic doohickey that has words on it? You know, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's just, am I okay? Do I belong? You know, that's it. That's, the, that's all it is. So <clears throat> in this environment of competition and hunger for belonging that gets distorted promises of do this and you'll belong, um, all of that works against our natural capacity and our natural desire to just connect and love and create a bigger and bigger circle of happiness that includes wider and wider circles of people, not just the cool kids, but all the kids, not just the popular teachers, but all the teachers, you know, all of that. We, you know. So I think it's just um, part, what, part of what is so wonderful about our practice is that it offers us, you know, a chance to come home to our true nature, our true brain chemistry if you will you know, and our true heart chemistry and then from this place that we develop and cultivate in this mindfulness practice and in this sangha to see where that takes us to see how we can go back out into the world and see these false images and these false allures for what they are because we're all very wise and we all nod when, when I say something like what, who cares about the iPad we all nod but you know we get caught in it too you know, it may be more subtle, but I have seen parents, including myself and my, my peers, get very caught up in this college race and this fearfulness and this scarcity. There's nothing like scarcity to push us back into our reptilian brain, you know. And that's how advertising works, is they, they give us this feeling of scarcity so that we go into these primitive, you know, acquisitive places of like, gotta get, gotta get, because there's something dangerous that's gonna happen if I don't get it. So we um we really... I guess just have to come back to our daily practice and to those core truths that we know about who we are and what our children need and what we need. And then the culture can kind of do its little song and dance, but we have a little more immune system. We can kind of build up our spiritual immune system to, um, to not get caught so easily. And, and, and with mindfulness to notice when we're caught, because we can tell. Really, I can tell when I'm a little zany and a little wacky, you know. And, and, and for some, fortunately, we have either partners or good friends who can say, hello, you're a little wacky right now about this college thing or this acquisition thing or this holiday present or birthday party where they want 20 friends to go to Great America and then have a pizza party and you're like, you know. So, But here's another thing that gets in the way of our compassion. They did a, a, um, an experiment once. It was called the Good Samaritan Experiment. Well, they'd actually done a number of them to try to understand what it is that, that where some people reach out and really intervene when something bad is happening or rescue when something needs rescuing and why some people don't. And one thing they did was they worked with theology students in a seminary and they were all studying the story of the Good Samaritan. So they spent several days talking about all of the implications. You know the story of the the wounded man who's taken upon by robbers and beaten and left in a ditch to die. And first a very upright religious person of some kind walks by and sees them and won't touch them because they're sort of untouchable and broken and messy and dirty and bloody and they just walk by. And then another high person of some other tradition, religious tradition, comes by or some other... um, kind of cast of people in those days, in the the ancient days, came by and did the same thing. And then a Samaritan, a person from Samaria came by. And I believe, I, I hope I've got this right, I'm not the greatest biblical scholar, but that Samaria was in that particular culture considered a sort of outcast region or a stranger region. They were the other. They were the other and we didn't really want them around. And the Samaritan came and took the wounded person and took them to the inn and bound their wounds and fed them and paid for their lodging and rescued them. And it's just a beautiful story of the person who is the other and the outcast bonding with the person who has been beaten down. And um, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about it's where we've been wounded that sometimes makes us the best healer, you know, the one who understands the, the need to reach out. So after the theology students studied this for several days and really talked about it very thoroughly, they were um, told to go to, get this right, they they were to go to a lecture across the campus. And um, there were two different groups of students. And one group of students was told, um, you're to go to the lecture, but you've you've got plenty of time. It's not going to start for about another hour. And they had planted on the pathway, on the way to the lecture, a person who was lying in the bushes, um, clearly in distress, clearly not doing well at all. And the other group was sent to the lecture, but they were told, it's gonna start in about five minutes, you really gotta hustle. And then they set the two groups off, and I think there were two different plants of wounded people waiting because they sent them in different directions. I don't know, You, you get the idea. And wouldn't you know, The group that had plenty of time, we thought they had plenty of time, stopped, helped the person, picked them up, walked them to the infirmary, did everything that one would do. The people who were told you only have ten minutes walked right by. And this was after two days of studying, you know, the Good Samaritan story. Such a teaching on time, isn't it? And let's just take a moment to reflect on what is happening to our time. Right? I don't need to tell you. I don't know what it is. The world's turning faster may end in disaster, <laughs> you know. It, it, our, our time seems to be shrinking, and it's not. But something's happening to our to our doingness. That the doingness has so outstripped the beingness that our time is just swallowed up. And when we don't feel like we have time, compassion just gets shriveled up very easily. So I think I'll I'll just take a little song break here because we only have a few minutes left and sing you a song um, about time and how it... um how important it is it's called smell the flowers and I wrote this after Sylvia or for actually a family day that Sylvia Borstein came to do with us and she read the story of Ferdinand the bull you remember Ferdinand the bull who was this feisty little bull who all he wanted to do was sit and smell the flowers while all the other bulls were like you know you know he was the sensitive child and um so the the, there was a repeated line in, in the book about he just wanted to sit and smell the flowers So that inspired this song. I remember way back when I could barely reach my mama's hand We walked so slow around the block Seeing all there was to see Ladybugs and funny clouds A garden slug I've got this all wrong. Funny clouds and ladybugs A butterfly, a garden slug She turned and she gave me a hug Smiled and said these words to me Let's just sit and smell the flowers We can while away the hours There's things we have to do sometimes Things we have to do But today let's take a while the flowers all too soon it's high school years all the pressure all the fears college looming up ahead will there be a place for me clubs to join and sports to play it'll look good on my resume it's a game that everybody plays says to me, you can sit and smell the flowers, you can walk away the hours, there's deadlines and there's things to do, but most of them can wait, take a little time to sit and smell the flowers. It seems time swept me up. I'm drinking from that coffee cup. I drive and eat and work too much. I'm grown up, but I don't feel free. And they're talking about a new depression, climate change, insurrection. I think we need a new direction. Something about what Mama said to me. can sit, smell the flowers, while away the hours, we can while away the hours. It could save our world, save our souls if we slip out of that stranglehold, take a little time to breathe. This is what I do believe Our children just need room to breathe Take a little time to breathe And smell the flowers. So please, please, let's, let's make a pact together not to succumb to the stranglehold of time. We are the owners of our karma. We are the owners of our time. We do have choices. The last thing I just want to say is that um, there are lots of ways we can ease the suffering of all beings without ever going to Afghanistan or Africa or East Oakland or whatever. And it really has to do with how we participate in... We're a dominant culture. We are one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Yesterday, I'm not sure about today. It's all changing really fast. But we, um, as you well know, are consuming the planet's resources at a rapid rate. We're the major oil consumers. you You know, this is our lives. And it doesn't mean that the, the remedy to that is to all go live in a yurt, although wouldn't we love to sometimes? But there really are you know choices that we can make on a daily basis and help our children make. And it's, it's um, not only not that hard, it's really... What I find when I make those choices is it makes a richer life. For example, every time I choose to ride my bike instead of use my car, I get so much joy out of it. My husband, bless his heart, will not drive. He's one of these pure people. <laughs> oh, my God. And he rides his bike everywhere. And he always says, it just gives him so much joy. And he feels, such, he feels the suffering of other humans when we're driving our car. And he's in the car. And he sees all the other drivers. And he talks about how painful it is to see everyone in their little bubble, their little you know tin and, and plastic bubble, alone, fuming up the planet, you know, destroying... I mean, he's just very sensitive to all this. He's got a very big view, so he feels it, you know, very deeply. And that, you know, that's bless his heart, you know, that's, that's a beautiful thing, and it, 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 it affects me, living with him affects me, but there are many, many choices we can make that will actually bring more joy into our lives, and I think another thing you said that was so helpful, Ajahn Passanel, was the, the circle, or was it Gil, maybe it was Gil, about the, the this leads to ha- the happiness, and happiness leads to this, what, what is that circle, could somebody repeat it for me? Relinquishment is the one I'm waiting for. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the one I want to talk about because yeah, it really, it's, really it's like, because it, yeah, that relinquishment comes from a full heart. Yes, it's not from pushing anything away. It's yes, because you're because you're content. Because you're full. Why mess it up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Relinquishment brings joy. That's, that's Eve Decker has a wonderful song about renunciation and how it sounds so austere, but it's really rich and warm and juicy. So this is something we can practice in our daily life that can bring us more joy. It's more simplicity, you know, a little bit of relinquishment. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, I had so many quotes to read to you that I'm not going to do. I actually am not going to read them, but I put out on the tables in back um, some copies of a little writing by Thich Nhat Hanh, Suffering is Not Enough, where he talks about busyness. And another one by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Where he talks about Buddhism needing to really grow up a little bit around engagement um, and how it's it's no longer, our world is not a context anymore where individual liberation is enough. And, you know, that might have been a, a good teaching for 2,000 years ago, although that it's not what the Buddha taught. But <laughs> I, I knew you were going to correct me on that. <laughs> but um, that. Um, Yes. So anyway, so I leave these readings out there for you. And I also, for your reading entertainment, left you a blog that I wrote about a trip I took to Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago with a feminist activist, a peace group called Code Pink. And um, it was a big, um, wonderful awakening for me in my own social justice life to... Kind of go out there and do some social action and peace action that was a little more in your face. It was a little edgier, and as a, a nonviolent person, it was pretty interesting to uh, find that edge for myself. Of if the world is really on the brink. We need to take extreme measures. And how do we do that and still stay loving? So I wrote some reflections. It's called, How Would the Buddha Protest? And um, so if you're interested, it's out there. I didn't make enough for everybody because I, I and I've perhaps over-modestly thought not everybody will be interested. But um, so I didn't make enough of these printouts for everybody. If you don't get one, just um, sign my email list that I'll put out soon and I'll send them, I can email them to you. Oh, we could print more, that's true. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see how many of them fly off the table They're in the back table. Also, in a moment, Gil is going to come up and talk to us, but I just want to say that since I didn't do a lot of my parenting songs today, and if you haven't had a chance to hear them yet, they are recorded on CDs. There's a CD called Mother Light, CD called Heart of a Child, and then there's Calm Down Boogie, which is mindfulness music for children, and then my brand new CD, folks, I finally have a new one after all these years. It's called Real to Me. It's adult music but it has five songs on it of teenage parenting. So for those of you who have teenagers, or will have teenagers, <laughs> 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 it's there, it's there. So let's just, just take a moment to just kind of breathe and just let all of this kind of run through us, because it's been a beautiful session, and I thank you so much for holding my dad in your thoughts and your heart, and my mom, too, Margaret, who's 89 and holding a lot right now. So maybe we could just take a moment to just send a a good wish up to Seattle to my family and um, wishing for my father a safe and an easeful passage from this beautiful life to the next beautiful life.